Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. One of the outcomes of the end of apartheid in South Africa was a massive growth of the black middle class. But as the ruling party mismanages the country's economy, it risks losing power by alienating the very demographic it helped to create. And for those who go on the wagon around this time of year, options used to be limited to soft drinks or juice. Not anymore. We look at the explosion in non-alcoholic spirits with as much variety and as much branding as the hard stuff. First up, though. On this vote, the ayes are 232, the nays are 197. The resolution is adopted. Without objection, the motion to reconsider is laid upon the table. In 230 years, the House of Representatives voted to impeach a president just twice. In the past 13 months, it's doubled that total by indicting President Donald Trump twice more. Yesterday's debate about whether Mr. Trump was guilty of incitement of insurrection at last week's Capitol riot revealed a party still split by Trumpism. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy called the fast-track impeachment a mistake. A vote to impeach would further divide this nation. Yet unlike last year's proceedings, this time 10 members of Mr. Trump's own party turned against him, including Dan Newhouse of Washington State. The president took an oath to defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Last week, there was a domestic threat at the door of the Capitol, and he did nothing to stop it. House Democrats presented a united front and a unanimous vote. The worst president in the history of the United States. Donald Trump is a living, breathing, impeachable offense. Impeachment in the Democrat-led House had been virtually assured. Now, a vote in the Senate will decide whether to convict and remove him. Not at all a sure thing. This time around, there was no running commentary on the proceedings from Mr. Trump himself. In a White House statement after the vote, he called on his followers to remain peaceful and made no mention of impeachment. Meanwhile, thousands of National Guard troops have been deployed to Washington, many barracked in the Capitol building itself. And the FBI has warned of possible armed protests in the city and in all 50 state capitals. The articles of impeachment accuse him of inciting an insurrection. And I think it's important to stand back and just think about what that means for a second. Edward Carr is The Economist's deputy editor. Donald Trump is accused of attempting to overturn an election that he lost unambiguously. And he's done this with a campaign of lies. It's clearly intended to convince his supporters that they and the Republic are the victims of a conspiracy to 
seize power by the establishment and the left. And then he's gone about with his henchmen to whip up a mob to march on the legislature in order to try and overturn the result of the election, having failed to do so by pressing and uh, threatening state officials. I think in a democracy, an attempt to overthrow an election using the mob and using a campaign of lies is about as serious as it gets. I have no doubt that the framers, when they used that famous term, high crimes and misdemeanors, had exactly this sort of thing in mind. And yet not all Republican congressmen agree with that assessment. There were arguments against impeaching him. What what do you make of that? Well, I mean, on one level, at a time when politics is deeply, deeply polarized, it's not surprising that Republicans should want to stick with their tribe. So it doesn't surprise me that Republicans have arguments against. The sorts of arguments they use, I I don't think, are terribly convincing. At one level, there's the argument that that Trump didn't incite the crowd. Well, I, I just think that that's not very plausible. You only have to look at the speech and all his behavior beforehand. Uh, Another argument is that at a difficult time for America, which is, after all, undergoing a pandemic, America should be uniting rather than being divided. Well, I I think that is self-serving and rather hollow. It is true that America needs to unite, and it's true that America needs to get on with these things, but it's also true that America needs to defend its democracy. And I think the kind of unity that people want is impossible when you have a president that has been sowing discord throughout his presidency and particularly in the run-up and the aftermath of, of the election. The way to get unity is to confront one's political problems, not to pretend that they don't exist. But it's not at all clear that that could happen before Mr. Trump would leave anyway. What, what is the point of going through all of this when the president will soon no longer be sitting? It's absolutely true that, that of course... This removal, if it happens at all, and and I think it's quite unlikely, but if it does happen, it it wouldn't happen before he'd already left office. However, impeachment allows a subsequent vote that could bar Mr Trump from standing for office again. And it's entirely possible at the moment that he does intend to stand as the Republican candidate in the 2024 election. But I think just as important, actually more important than that, is that it draws a clear line that says this kind of behaviour by a sitting president, an attempt to overturn an election using violent threats and the campaign of lies, is just unacceptable. And unless the United States and its politicians are prepared to stand up and say that, it's a kind of encouragement for the next guy to have a go. So at this stage for Republican congressmen, then it is it is in part defending the institution, but is it not in part a bit of political expediency, a chance to, to, to rid the party formally of Trumpism? Yes, I think it is. Uh, I mean, those politicians who, in effect, began to break with Mr. Trump by voting to accept the Electoral College vote for Mr. Biden have, in the eyes of Mr. Trump, already begun to break with him. And, and once you've started that process, you really ought to see it through. There's also a sort of judgment of history. You may want to be remembered as someone who stood up for right in the long run. And then lastly, a question of personal courage, I think, which is that a a lot of Republicans are receiving very unpleasant and frightening threats to their personal safety, accused of being traitors to Mr Trump. Well, it takes courage to stand up and be counted, but at the same time, not doing so 
leaves you with a horrible prospect of perpetually being a kind of hostage in your own party. But what about the actual mechanics of it, though, uh, about convicting a president after he's actually left office? Well, they're unclear. Uh, You know, conservative jurists say say the Constitution does not allow you to do that. Um, It only applies to an incumbent. Ultimately, this is something that's going to be decided, if it's challenged, by the Supreme Court, where there are um, a majority of conservative jurors. So it's not certain at all that a trial can proceed in the Senate. But this whole process is going on even as the, the kind of factions that broke into the Capitol building are still threatening more violence and so on. The Capitol itself being turned into a fortress with the National Guard sleeping in the hallways and so on. How big a threat is this as this plays out in terms of stability in America right now? My worry is that America is entering a period of political violence. For many decades, political violence has been, been almost unheard of in the United States. And I I worry that we're entering another unstable phase where people feel that debate and electoral politics and compromise are just so unthinkable that they start to take really violent and frightening action. So I think it's worrying and it takes time for the fever to break. This is unfortunately not over. Edward, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. This week on Checks and Balance, our sister show on American politics, more on the efforts to hold the president accountable for the attack on the U.S. Capitol and the siege's roots in the rapid spread of right-wing extremist networks. It was like, oh, it's here. We're too late. They were all turning to us saying like, Hey guys, forget ISIS and returning foreign terrorist fighters. My number one concern right now is this rising uh, right-wing extremism turning violent on my streets and you guys are exporting it. Checks and Balance is out tomorrow, available from your preferred podcast purveyor. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. In the years after apartheid, portrayals of newly rich black South Africans often highlighted excess. These so-called black diamonds showed off their fast cars, expensive booze, and luxurious homes. None more so, perhaps, than Kenny Kunene, a businessman, convicted fraudster, and sometime reality TV star who was criticized for spending nearly $50,000 on a party at which he ate sushi off of scantily clad women. For people with class, elegance, and style, and money, of course, because... But this focus on the flashy masked the reality of a far wider social mobility that was taking place, and one that may now be at risk. Freed from the oppression of apartheid, since 1994, many black South Africans have prospered. John McDermott is our chief Africa correspondent. Those who have often gained the most attention from media and advertisers have been the bling-clad elite, but a more representative group of people are found near where I live in Johannesburg, the suburbs with 
terracotta tiles atop the houses and Toyotas in the driveways. And it's those middle-class black South Africans whose prosperity has been created in large part by the ruling African National Congress that are now in jeopardy as the country faces a fiscal crisis. Before we get to the crisis, how is it that the African National Congress, the ANC, influenced the growth of that black middle class in the first place? It did so in a number of ways, just by it not being the apartheid regime that enabled black people who were otherwise locked out of plum jobs to get them, both in the public and to a lesser extent in the private sector. But the ANC also went further. It instituted some of the broadest affirmative action policies anywhere in the world, reserving jobs for black civil servants in the state and in state-run enterprises, so much so that whereas the majority of the middle class was, was white in 1994 when Nelson Mandela was elected, today it is majority black. But to say that black South Africans make up a, a much larger fraction of the middle class is not to say that, that the average black South African is in it. Yeah, that's right. Most middle class South Africans are black, but most black South Africans are not middle class. Roughly kind of 20% can be thought of as middle class, broadly meaning having enough money that they're not moving in and out of poverty from year to year. But most are still what academics call chronically poor, and the rest, aside from a very small elite, are moving in and out of want from year to year. So while there has been a big expansion in the black middle class, that doesn't necessarily mean by any account that black poverty has been ended in South Africa. But you, you mentioned in particular a fiscal crisis going on in South Africa now. How does that affect this, this demographic picture, do you think? A decade ago, South Africa was enjoying 5% GDP growth. Its debt levels were quite low. This was due in part to some sensible macroeconomic policies, but also rising commodity prices. Over the past decade, growth has slowed, partly because of falling commodity prices. But the ANC government has spent as if we're still in a commodity boom. And it has largely spent the money on welfare programs and, crucially, wages for public sector workers. And that, even on the eve of the pandemic, was causing a looming fiscal crisis, which the COVID-19 pandemic has only accelerated. So now the Treasury this year is forecasting a deficit of around 15% of GDP, roughly one in every five rand goes towards servicing its debt, and that share is only going to increase. Sooner or later, the South African government is going to have to reckon with this fiscal crisis. And is it doing anything in that direction now? Tito Mbweni, the finance minister, has proposed a trimming of the budget, and he is zeroed in on this public sector wage bill. The issue is that to take on this public sector workforce is to take on the very black middle class whose creation the ANC sees as one of its crowning achievements. So how likely is it that, that he will actually go through with those cuts then? The finance minister has been something of a lone voice when it comes to advocating reforms and the public sector unions who are quite close to President Cyril Ramaphosa have vowed to block any cuts to their pay packets. I think the most likely scenario is that some cuts will happen or some slowdown in wage growth will happen, but perhaps not as much as Mr Mbwini would want. Either way, whether it happens this year or in five years' time, at some point, 
unless South Africa radically overhauls its economic model, there's going to have to be a reckoning with the state largesse that it's established over the past decade or so. And when that reckoning comes, what will the, the political costs be? One of the problems that's plagued post-apartheid South Africa is the perceived absence of alternatives to the ANC. And for a lot of black South Africans, they still see the party, however flawed, as their best vehicle for security and prosperity. However, if their kind of material situation were to deteriorate because the government's run out of money, then you're looking at a situation that the old national party, which was the white party that run the apartheid state, saw as well, where ultimately it's the economic burden that the regime places upon its core supporters that led to its downfall. And without being too dramatic, if the ANC can't even continue to secure the support of the people who have benefited most from its government, then it's in dire trouble. John, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. It's a sobering time of year for many people taking part in dry January, abstaining from alcohol for the month to atone for the excesses of the holiday season. But abstinence no longer necessarily means completely giving up on the ritual of a well-mixed cocktail. A no-grony or a cause-no-politan, perhaps? Non-alcoholic spirits have basically been around since 2014, when the brand Seedlip launched. There are now 42... UK-based non-alcohol spirit brands, 29 in the US. There were 11 launches in the UK in 2020. There were 12 in the US. So it's a growth area. The sales have grown about 500% in the last five years. Henry Hitchings writes about arts and culture for 1843, The Economist's sister magazine. There's a sense that COVID has been a sort of aid to this rather than a hindrance. People who are concerned about their health and their well-being, are embracing this trend for non-alcoholic drinks and non-alcoholic spirits with which you can be creative are particularly attractive. But if the point is simply not to drink the alcoholic part of the spirit, then, then why not soft drinks and juices? I guess the answer is that these companies want to sell a product that's compatible with sobriety, but it commands the respect and perpetuates the rituals that attend, say whiskey or gin. So that ritual element and the variety of things that you can do with the products, those things are essential. And consumers seeking to enrich their diet with ingredients that promise reduced risk of illness, better gut health, more energy. So I I understand the health motivations, the marketing motivations even, but, but what about where the rubber meets the road? What are these drinks actually like? So I think there are two routes available to you. One is to try and ape the things that you already do. So you can make a counterfeit martini with seed lip. You can make a kind of ersatz old-fashioned using something called ferragaya, which is a Scottish light but smoky spirit. And that's pretty successful. Some of these drinks are really just designed to go with a tonic. But actually, there is an opportunity to experiment with them and to go into quite unexpected places. And I always think that one of the pleasures of drinking is the conversation a drink fuels about itself, its different notes, its temper, its structure. And that is possible 
with these low elk spirits. And that's interesting and perhaps unexpected. I mean, given the sort of the, the, the multi-dimensional approach, it looks like there's a kind of potential for a, a mirror world, a back bar stocked just as thickly with, with non-alcoholic stuff. Is that where you see this going, a non-alcoholic cocktail list in, in, in future bars just as long as the regular kind? I think that could be somewhere we go. I think actually what's interesting is that as the producers of non-alcoholic spirits are getting better at what they do, they're realising that there are other opportunities that are available to them. One of the things I heard a bit about is to try and develop non-alcoholic wine that isn't just de-alcoholised grape juice, but is actually something much more elaborately constructed, which nonetheless has the complexity and mouthfeel and attendant pleasures of of wine drinking. I think there's a sense that the horizons have massively expanded. It started out with the idea, let's do something a bit like gin, and actually now there's no territory that the alchemists in this field don't feel they could go into. A sobering thought. Henry, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow.